Right, open up to Second Chronicles chapter 36. Second Chronicles chapter 36. And I entitled the message tonight, God Loses His Patience. Now you might think, well, Pastor Joe, I've heard you say that God is long-suffering and He's He's not in a hurry for anything and and uh, you know but there is a line that is drawn you could say in the sand where God says enough is enough I've had it and judgment comes in our story this evening the days are number are now numbered for the southern kingdom of Judah and Josiah was the last good king that the nation had all the kings that came after Josiah were bad apples, bad kings. And their evil reigns, reigns is what brought about God's judgment on Judah even sooner. We have a short record here about their attitude toward God, that is the people, and a record of the main things that brought the nation down. Let's begin now with chapter 36 with verses 1 through 10. And it says, Then the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. Now the king of Egypt deposed him at Jerusalem, and he imposed on the land a tribute of 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. Then the king of, uh, the king of Egypt made Jehoahaz's brother Eliakim, king over Judah and Jerusalem, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. And Necho took Jehoahaz, his brother, and carried him off to Egypt. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Notice, his God. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, his God. Nebuchadnezzar, King of Babylon came up against him and bound him in bronze fetters or bronze chains to carry him off to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also carried off some of the articles from the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his temple at Babylon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim, the abominations which he did and what was found against him, indeed, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. Then Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. Jehoiakim was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months and ten days. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Notice it didn't say his Lord or his God. Verse 10, At the turn of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar summoned him and took him to Babylon with the costly articles from the house of the Lord and made Zedekiah, Jehoiakim's son, a brother, king over Judah and Jerusalem. So here we have the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem. It didn't happen all at once. It took place in stages. God did it that way to show that he wasn't in a hurry to wipe them out. And that he doesn't take any pleasure in the downfall and the destruction of sinners. He would rather that they turn from sin and live for him. And by bringing their destruction in stages, he gives them time and he gives them reason to repent. He waits to be gracious to us. We read in Isaiah 30, 18, Therefore the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. The history of these kings' reigns are recorded mostly in the, in the last three chapters of Second Kings. 
So first of all, we read in verse 1 that Jehoahaz was set up by the people of the land. Now, the people of the land was an official way of saying it was a body of leaders, something like a council of elders or a kind of informal legislative body of governing leaders. Whenever there was a crisis, this group, that is the people of the land, would go into action like the time uh, that Josiah was killed in battle in the last chapter. His loss, though, was made worse by the the fact that he had at least four sons who could have taken the throne after him. But it seems like that Josiah may not have yet chosen which one of those four sons would take the throne after him. So we read in verse 1, The people of the land, that is this governing body, went into action and made Jehoahaz king. But in just three months, Jehoahaz was overthrown by Necho, king of Egypt, and he was carried off as a prisoner to Egypt. And the land was then fined or forced to pay a tribute for setting him up as a king, according to verses 2 and 4, through through 4, 2 through 4. And then we don't hear any more about Jehoahaz. After the Assyrians were defeated at Haran and Carchemish, the Egyptian army, army withdrew south of the Euphrates to take over Syria and Palestine. Judah then became an Egyptian subservient state, a puppet state to, to King Necho which explains why King Necho could overthrow Jehoahaz and required a tribute on the land. So Judah became, had become a poor and weak state. Now, if Jehoahaz would have walked in his father's godliness, he might have kept the throne longer than three months and his reign may have been more prosperous. But you see, we're told in Kings that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So his success and joy didn't last very long. Secondly, then Jehoiakim, also, which is his name was Eliakim, was set up by the king of Egypt, an old enemy to their land. King Necho appointed the king that he wanted for the kingdom, and he would, he would name them whatever he pleased, as we see in verse 4. So he made Eliakim king, but he changed his name to Jehoiakim, and the purpose of that was to show his power and his authority over him. Jehoiakim, verse 5 said, did what was evil. And verse 8, we read about the wicked things that he did. He was very wild and he was very wicked. And then we don't hear any more about Necho, the king of Egypt. But the king of Babylon came against him, verse 6 says, carried him bound in in chains and carried him off to Babylon. And we also read in verse 7, that the vessels of the temple were now carried away. And Nebuchadnezzar used them in his temple in Babylon. Judah's sin was that they had brought the heathen idols into God's house. And now their punishment was that the vessels of the temple were carried away to serve the gods of the nations. Again, the things that were made holy and sanctified and set apart for for use by God were now being used in a heathen temple. And you know in that picture we see many times how, how, how some believers. You know they fall away from the Lord. And they begin to, to stray. And they begin to serve the enemy. And then the enemy uses them. The vessels that God has set apart. For his kingdom and for his service. Become again vessels of the enemy. If men will disrespect God's institutions by their sins. It's only fair that God allows them to be disrespected by their enemies. Carrying away these vessels to Babylon was just the beginning of the ruin of Jerusalem. 
But when Belshazzar drank wine in them to honor his gods, that was the last straw. That was the point of no return. The handwriting was on the wall and announced the doom in Daniel, Daniel chapter 5, verse 3. And then Jehoiakim, or Jehoiachin, or Jeconiah, both the same person, the son of Jehoiakim, tried to reign in his place. And he reigned just long enough to show his evil, the evil tendency that he had. But after three months and ten days, the king of Babylon took him away captive with more of the temple vessels. Then Zedekiah, the youngest of Josiah's four sons, was the third king to rule over Judah. He was appointed king by, uh, uh, by King Nebuchadnezzar, showing Judah's position as a Babylonian puppet state. Look at verses 11 through 21 now. Let's read them. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear an oath by God. But he stiffened his neck and he hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the nations and defiled the house of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them, because, notice, he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God. They despised his words and they scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people. Notice, till there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on, on, on young man or virgin. On the aged or the weak, he gave them all into his hand. And all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his leaders, all these he took to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious possessions. And those who escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbath. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now here in verses 11 through 21, we have the destruction of Jerusalem. And here we also have the sins that brought this misery upon the people. King Zedekiah, Judah's last king, brought it upon himself because of his own foolishness. Because Zedekiah behaved very sinfully towards God and the king of Babylon. Jeremiah, we see, brought him messages from God. He brought God's word to him. And if he would have listened to the messages from Jeremiah that God had sent, it probably would have kept the peace longer. But he didn't humble himself before Jeremiah. And he didn't submit to the word of God from Jeremiah, verse 12 tells us. You would think that he would humble himself before God's prophet. And that he would submit to his word of warnings and obey them. But because he wouldn't make himself a servant of God, he was made a slave to his enemies. And that's all you can expect when you reject, again, the word of God and the service of God. Because God will find some way or another to humble you if you won't humble yourself. He's real good at that. 
Jeremiah was a prophet of God, and he was speaking for God. And whoever wouldn't humble themselves before him was in, was in danger of the judgment, of God's judgment. Psalm 107, verses 10 through 12. We read this last Sunday night in this psalm. Those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, bound in affliction and irons, because they rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the Most High, therefore he brought their heart he brought down their heart with labor. God knew how to broke them, break them. They, they, were, they, they rejected, they rebelled the word of God. They despised the counsel of the Most High. But it says he brought their heart down with labor. He broke them. Again, God knows how to break the proud. If Zedekiah would have honored his covenant with the king of Babylon... Remember, it said that he made an oath to the Lord to serve the king of Babylon. If he would have honored that covenant with the king, that would have stopped his ruin. But he rebelled against him, even though he vowed to be his faithful subject. But he broke his vow to him. And this is what made the king of Babylon so mad. And this is why that the king of Babylon dealt with him so harshly. When, 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 and during these times, when, when somebody took an oath... All nations looked at an oath as a sacred thing. And those who broke that oath, man, they were the worst of men. They were abandoned of God and they were hated by all men. Zedekiah, verse 13, said, made an oath to Nebuchadnezzar in the name of God, of all things. In the name of God, he said, I will serve you, Nebuchadnezzar. Even though he was an heathen enemy, God expected, again, him to honor that oath because it was done in the name of God. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 5, 4 through 6, When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. It's better not to make a vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to, uh, your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God, Oh, it was a mistake. It was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? So the thing that ruined Zedekiah wasn't only that he didn't turn to the Lord, which was more than enough, but that he was stubborn and he hardened his heart from turning to God. He stubbornly decided not to return to the Lord. He wouldn't submit to God. He wouldn't submit to his word. So God was going to bring judgment. The awful sin that brought this destruction was idolatry. The priests and the people worshiped the heathen gods. And they had forsaken the pure worship of God for the vulgar, filthy rituals of the pagan lies that polluted God's house. Paul said in Romans 1, 22 through 23 and verse 25, he said, professing to be wise, they became fools and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image like corruptible man, made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Man, man they, they, they strayed from the worship of the true living God to, to, to figures and creatures and, 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 you know, things of this type and worship them rather than the creator. And then verse 14 talks about the abominations of the nations. This mainly refers to idolatry and all the immorality and the perversity that went with this worship. God's covenant with Israel required them to be different. They were to be different from the nations around them. And this, they were required to be different in the most important matter. 
And, you know, we've been studying that in the Sermon on the Mount. How Jesus said, we are to be different than the unbelieving world. And that's the, the most significant thing that, that matters there. We are to be different because we're called by his name. Exodus 22, oh, sorry, Exodus 23, verse 24 says, Again, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. Leviticus 1, you shall not make idols for yourself, neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves, nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it. God says, for I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 4, 15, 14, 15 through 20. It says, take care to he- take careful heed to yourselves. For you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure. The likeness of male or female. The likeness of any animal that is on the earth. Or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air. The likeness of anything that creeps on the ground. Or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. And take heed, lest you lift your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the host of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be his people and inheritance as you are this day. They had plenty of warnings. They had plenty of God's word to say you are not to have anything to do with idol worship worship but even in spite of these serious warnings the priests and the high priests and all those who should have opposed idolatry they were the ones leading the pack the awful aggravating thing about their sin was how they treated god's prophets who it says were sent to them to call them to repentance and in this we see god's tender compassion for them He sent the prophets to them. Why? Because he was the God of their fathers, those before them, who had made a covenant with him and who they they worshipped. They made a covenant with who they worshipped, even though they forsook him. God sent his messengers to these people. And he sent them to convict them of their terrible sin and to warn them about the misery that they would bring upon themselves as a result of this idolatry. It says in verse 15, he sent them, notice, rising up early and sending. Rising up early and sending. This means he not only did this with the greatest of care and concern for them possible, but when they first turned from God to idols, God immediately, that's immediately, that means, that's what it means by when it says he, rising up early. He sent them immediately when he found out and he knew that they strayed from from worshiping the true and living God. He immediately sent to them his messengers to rebuke them for it. It says he warned them early, rising early. This means right away. He warned them right away about their duty to have no other gods before them. Before me, he says. And the danger they were in because of their disobedience. I mean, this should stir up, stir us up to seek God early and to listen to God when he warns us right away about our sin. The prophets that were sent rose up early to speak to the people. God's God's messengers were diligent. 
And they were faithful in doing their duty. They didn't waste any time to go to tell the people what they needed to hear. They didn't miss any chance to deal with the people. And the reason why God, by His prophets, strived, that is, made every effort with them, every effort with them to, to spare them, is because He had compassion on His people. And by these means, that is, by the sending of the prophets to rebuke them, this would have prevented their ruin. It shows us here how far God will go to rescue sinners. He will go, he will go to the length of, of using His Word, His ministers, by conscience, by pr- the providences, that is, by the things that God brings into your life to show you. These are all examples of His compassion for them. And that God, God is unwilling that, that any of them should perish. Ezekiel 33, 11 says, As I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. He said, turn twice, turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die? I mean, you can hear the pleading of God, turn, turn from your evil way. You see, their dishonor and their phony attitude towards God is what brought their destruction, verse 16 says. They mocked God's messengers. They despised God's word that they brought. They abused the prophets of God. They treated them like their enemies. The way they treated Jeremiah proved that their hearts were cold and they had hostility toward God and they were determined to go on in their sins. And this is what brought God's wrath upon them. Verse 16 says, His wrath came upon them, notice, till there was no remedy. Because you see, it was sinning against the remedy. There was no healing deliverance for them anymore. God had warned Judah about their sin and he continually restored the people to his favor, to his kindness, only to watch them repeatedly turn away again. The time finally came when the situation became hopeless, beyond remedy. This is a warning to, behold, to, to beware of holding on to sin in your heart. Because the day will come when there is no possible remedy. And God's mercy will be replaced by judgment. Sin that's often repeated, but you never repent of, that's inviting, that's inviting disaster. That's inviting God's judgment. Because nothing makes God more angry than mistreating his faithful ministers of his word. Because what's done against them, he takes personal. It's really, it's really done against God. You're really rejecting God and his word. Those who mock God's faithful ministers and belittle them and make them hated and, and who trouble and mistreat them who discourage them and keep others from listening to them, need to be reminded that when you do God's ambassadors wrong, the day is coming when they'll find out, when you'll find out, it would have been better for you if you'd been thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around your neck. Proverbs 29.1 reads, He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. These people here had reached the point of no return where God said, that's it. You've gone too far. I'm done with you. 
We read, for if we, willfully, if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Hebrews 10, 26-31. In Noah's day, God said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. Noah, uh, Genesis 6, 3. Now God is long-suffering with lost sinners. But there does come a time when judgment has to fall. Now, during that day of grace, that time that Noah was preparing the ark and preaching that, that, that judgment was coming, it's the same message that Enoch had given during his lifetime. God gave his message in the mouth of two witnesses, but the people still wouldn't listen. Hey, it's a blessing that God's spirit strives with man because I think a lot of us wouldn't be here. <laughs> We need to thank God for the way his spirit strives with man. Because he is so patient and he is so long-suffering with men. I mean, including yourself, how many people that you know thought, oh, they'd never get saved. And we give up on them way before God does. God's spirit <clears throat> continues to strive, them, strive with them way after, you know, I said, oh man, it will never happen. And yet God saved them. But, it, but there is a warning. He won't always strive with man. There can come a time in your life, in a sinner's life where God says, all right, that's it. There's no remedy. There's a time when, when, when God lets a man go. Paul said in Romans 1 26 God gave them up three times we read God gave them up God gave them over God said to Jeremiah at this period of time in Jeremiah 7 16 do not pray for this people nor lift up a cry of prayer for them nor make intercession to me for I will not hear you you see a person can sin for so long that God says hey don't even pray for that person or those people anymore I mean, how terrible, how horrible when God's spirit stops striving with a person. When God says no more. There's no remedy for that person. When a man, cro when a man crosses that line, God says, that's it. They're done. John says in, in John uh, twelve thirty nine, speaking of the Pharisees, they could not believe. It wasn't that they wouldn't believe anymore, but they had passed that point. They came to the place where they couldn't believe. And you see, if you harden your heart against the things of God long enough, if you've been hearing God's voice as he's been talking to you, but you're ignoring God's voice and you continue to ignore God, and you continue to go your own way and do your own thing after God has spoken to you. If God's Spirit is striving with you right now, be thankful. Take advantage of God's patience and long suffering by giving yourself to Him. 
If he's still striving with you, there's still hope for you. But you see, you can come to a place where it no longer touches you. Where it no longer bothers you. Where it no longer convicts you. And when you've come to that place, it, it, it may be that you've, go, you've gone too far. And, and it just, I'm, I'm not going to go to church anymore. I just, you know, it's just, I've come to that place where it doesn't do anything anymore. If you can hear the word of God and you can look at the cross of Jesus Christ and you can casually say, eh, it doesn't do anything for me. You know, it, it doesn't move me. I don't feel anything then you are in a really dangerous place if God's Spirit is not striving with you. God says, there's no remedy. Hebrews 2, 3 says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You see, God does not sit idly by and allow His children to rebel against Him. He will continue to speak. And when necessary, he will discipline his own. He will discipline his own. More spiritual problems are caused by neglect than probably by any other thing that we fail to do. We neglect God's word. We neglect prayer, worship with God's people and other opportunities to grow spiritually speaking. And as a result, he has to discipline us. During Old Testament times, people who didn't heed God's word were sometimes punished. Now, at that, that time, God's word was given through angels. So, so how much greater responsibility do we have today who have received the word from the Son of God? You know, and, 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 and many believers today have the idea that because we are under grace, it doesn't matter what we do. And we escape the chastening hand of God, which was so obvious under the law. And, and too, too many Christians today take the word of God for granted and neglect it. As a result of Judah's continued sin, judgment came. The Babylonians killed Judah's young men and women. They killed the elderly and, 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 you know, in the sanctuary where they, when the elderly and those, those people ran for protection, they killed them in the sanctuary. They ran in there hoping that the holiness of the sanctuary would protect them. They were just being superstitious. Jeremiah chapter 7 verses 3 and 4 he says in the New Living Translation he says even now if you quit your evil ways I will let you stay in your own land but don't be fooled by those who promise you safety simply because the Lord's temple is here they were chanting oh the Lord's temple is here the Lord's temple is here and those in, 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 in here in chapter 36 the, the young men and the women and the elders they ran into the sanctuary for protection you need to remember this, this building, it's just a building. God is our protection for those who are walking in his will and in his way. But when we stray from the will of God, we are, we are straying out from underneath his protection. The people in Jeremiah had been assured that the presence of God's temple in Jerusalem guaranteed the nation God's blessing and protection from all their enemies. But this is not faith. It was blind superstition. 
How can we expect to find protection when we pollute his sanctuary with all kinds of abominations? And how can that apply to us today? How can we find protection when we come in here to worship God and we're harboring all kinds of abominations, anger and unforgiveness and bitterness? And yet we come in here and worship God. How can we expect again to find protection when we pollute his sanctuary with all kinds of sin? All those things that God hates and tells us about in the scriptures. Those who turn from their God forfeit all the benefit and comfort of their God. All the remaining vessels of the temple were taken and carried off to Babylon. Verse 18 says, the temple was burned down. The walls of Jerusalem were destroyed. The houses and all the furniture was laid in ashes. This is a picture of what miserable devastation sin brings. Those who weren't killed were carried, off, carried away as captives to Babylon. Poor, imprisoned, insulted, and exposed to all the miseries of sin. Not only in the strange and barbaric land, but the enemy's land, where those that hated them were the ones who ruled over them. They were servants to those kings. And no doubt, they were harshly dealt with as long as that kingdom lasted. Judah lay desolate, deserted, while they were captives in Babylon. That once fruitful land of Judah, the glory of all lands, was now turned into a desert. It wasn't cultivated. The land wasn't, wasn't farmed. But it was fair punishment for abusing it. You see, they had served Baal and they were now receiving the fruits of worshiping Baal. Leviticus 26, 27 through 45 predicted their captivity and it told how God's people would be taken from their land for disobeying God. And one of the laws they ignored said one out of every seven years of the land should rest, but they ignore that. One out of every seven years, the law was not to be farmed. It was to rest from producing crops that helped to, re-nourish and, to nourish and replenish the ground. They just kept on farming. Verses 22 through 23. Find my place here. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jerusalem might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, and the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is among you of all his people? May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Here Cyrus announces that he's going to go back and he's going to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem 48 years after it was destroyed. It was prophesied by Jeremiah in chapter 25, 11 through 12 and chapter 29, verse 10 of Jeremiah. Secondly, uh, or I should say Second Chronicles focuses on the rise and the fall of the worship of God symbolized by the Jerusalem temple. Worship in the temple was exceptionally organized. It was well organized. But several kings defiled God's temple and they corrupted the worship so that the people honored idols more than God. And finally, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon destroyed the temple 
according to verse 19. The kings were gone. The temples were destroyed. The temple was destroyed. The people were taken away. The nation was stripped down to the ground. But thank God, there was a greater foundation. God himself. When everything in life seems to be stripped away from us, we also have God, his word, his presence, and his promises. Father, thank you for this wonderful book that we, God, have gone through. And and Father, I pray, learn so much from God. Lord, it's just an amazing, all that we've studied in 2 Chronicles, God. Lord, we thank you for your wonderful word. We thank you for the lessons. We thank you for the counsel, Lord. We thank you for the examples, both good and bad, what to do and what not to do, God. Lord, I pray as your people, God, we would take these things that we've learned, God, and that we've, had a, that we've applied them and that we will continue to apply them, Lord. That we would continue to grow and to cultivate our relationship with you, Lord. The Father, we'd be more and more like Jesus every time we open the scriptures. And Father, I pray that, Lord, that we would, as, as it was to be done here, God, God's people were to be different, God, from everybody else. And they were to reflect the goodness and the holiness of the Almighty God. And Father, may we do the same thing, Lord. Let us not take your grace for granted, Lord. Let us not look at it as a license to sin or a dumping ground for our sin. Let us not make your grace cheap, Lord. Because it costs son, the Son of God greatly. Grace is not cheap. But God gives it to us abundantly. If you're here tonight and you, you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, you've never been born again, we pray that God's word tonight would speak to your heart and move you to make a choice for him. The worship team's going to lead us in a song of worship. And as they do, this time is for you to get up out of your seat, to make your way towards the steps up front. I'll meet you there. When the song's over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith. Mm-hmm.